Welcome. One of the hardest pills to swallow when I first discovered Ayn Rand and objectivism was their harsh evaluation of libertarians. At that point in my life, I was in an intermediate stage in the journey from Marxism to objectivism. So at that point, I considered I like freedom. I'm obviously a libertarian. And I was surprised to find out that Ayn Rand not only did not call herself a libertarian, but she had some very harsh things to say about many libertarians. She called them hippies of the right, whereas other objectivist intellectuals have called libertarianism a perversion of liberty. So not a philosophy of liberty, but a perversion of liberty. There's a new scholarly work out on the intellectual history and the internal divisions of libertarianism, and this gives us a very good chance to go back to some of the fundamental questions about libertarianism. Is libertarianism a coherent ideology? What is its relationship to objectivism? And also, I know that many of you might be wondering, wait a minute, libertarians are for freedom. You are for freedom. Isn't this a loss of time? Isn't this basically infighting? We have, at the same time, we have the left, the authoritarian right attacking us. Why spend time criticizing the libertarian movement? We will address all these issues today in the New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Nikos Odirakopoulos, and with me, my colleague, Ben Bayer. So, Ben, the book is The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism by Matt Zvolinsky and John Tomasi. So tell us a bit about the book and why you wanted to discuss it. Yes, well, Zvolinsky and Tomasi... I have been working on this book for a number of years. I remember seeing an early uh, chapter presented as a, a session at the American Philosophical Association many years ago. They're, they're scholars that I respect from the perspective of they really know their subject. They know the, this history. They've put a lot of work into this book. I wanted to, uh, to learn something from it. And indeed I did. Uh, it is a very interesting intellectual history. Uh, of two separate things. And I think it's important to keep them separate. One is the thinking about the concept of freedom and liberty, especially in the 19th and 20th century. And the other is of the libertarian movement. And these are not necessarily the same thing as we shall uh, discuss today. Uh, on the first though, so one thing that I, uh, I learned a fair amount about from reading this book is the way in which there was indeed a evolution in really radical thinking about the concept of individual liberty and individual rights uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, as opposed to kind of the classical liberal think thinkers of the 18th century, John Locke, Adam Smith. I think the book recognizes rightly that there is a connection between these two traditions, but it, it argues persuasively that in the late 19th century, this the view that individual rights is a principle that should govern uh, the, our entire society in an exceptionless way is something that really develops in this period, especially as a kind of reaction to uh, the development of capitalism, to the various socialist threats. Uh, and so there's, there's an important story to be told there. Likewise, uh, develops, especially in the United States, as a reaction against the institution of slavery. And so there's a lot of interesting things to learn here about the connection between the history of ideas 
and various forms of activism that take place in this period. In the UK, you learn about how the Manchester School opposes the corn laws, works for implementation of free trade and against various regulations. You learn about the Liberty and Property Defense League's opposition to regulations and mercantilism in the, in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's, it's, it, all of this is fascinating. It's also a very interesting history of the libertarian movement. And here again, I hasten to say, this is not necessarily the same thing as the intellectual history of thinking about actual individual freedom. We'll explain more about that soon. But uh, one of the things that we learn about the movement that calls itself libertarian is various and sundry fascinating connections that it has to the egalitarian left and likewise interesting connections to the nationalist, sometimes even racist right. And it, that already should indicate to you a bit about why the history then of this movement is not the same thing as the history of uh, thinking about freedom, even though that's also dealt with in the book. Another thing to note about this book is that it is generally respectful of Ayn Rand as a thinker, though it doesn't always agree with her. Uh, and that marks it out uh, as against other treatments of her in academia. Although one thing I should say here is that the overwhelming uh, exception to this point that I just made, and the main qualification that I need to make is that they aren't respectful of uh, her insistence that she is not a libertarian. They do not take seriously her claim uh, to not be a libertarian. They treat her as one uh, for reasons that we will examine and uh, analyze uh, later on in this episode. And I think the fact that they still see her as a libertarian in spite of her protests uh, is itself a symptom of some of the problems with the movement that we're going to be getting into. Um, but of course, Nico, as I mentioned, called... especially the, the interesting connections between uh, libertarian movement and movements that are not thought of as libertarian, one of them is the left. And I know you wanted to uh, comment on this. Yeah. So as a former leftist, in some ways, the transition to libertarians was not very difficult because there is a tradition within libertarians that relates it to the left. So, and Swolinski and Tomasi mentioned this. So today, when we think about libertarians, we think free market capitalism, we think laissez-faire. But this was not always the case, particularly in the United States in the 19th century, the, the, the vehicle, the political vehicle, so to speak, for libertarian ideas was considered mostly what they call voluntary socialism. Voluntary socialism. Now, it's very unclear what exactly is voluntary socialism, but definitely it's not what we have in our mind as laissez-faire uh, laissez capitalism. So the key figure in the 19th century in the United States is Benjamin Tucker. Benjamin Tucker was an individualist uh, anarchist. But in his journal, in his journal on liberty, you see many contributions that are against rent, against the idea of profit, and definitely against the idea of interest. Now, the surprising thing is that Murray Rothbard, who many consider the most prominent figure in the libertarian movement as it develops in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, is someone for whom Benjamin Tucker has been a key influence. And later, Rothbard becomes a figure related to what we'd call paleo-libertarianism, what, to put it very, very simply, 
libertarianism related to conservative and right-wing ideas. And yet, for Rothbard, Benjamin Tucker, the guy who attacks the idea of uh, profit, of interest, or whose journal attacks these ideas, is an influence for the key libertarian figure of the 20th century. Even today, you can find some libertarians, not many, but there is a wing in the libertarian movement that they consider themselves left-wing libertarians. And they would say things such as, for example, if you live in a house and you pay rent, you should uh, expropriate the house and kick off your landlord. Or that if you produce a value in a factory or if you work for an employer, you have a right to the product of your labor. So again, these are ideas that we would consider more with the left rather than with the right. So Ben, let's pause here and ask the question, how can it be that libertarianism, that today we another history of libertarianism is called radicals for capitalism, how can it be that it has a whole wing within it which espouses ideas that are closer to the left? There's a lot to say there. I mean, if it sounds strange to anyone in our audience, then it's it's because I think you're probably not considering how the word freedom, the word liberty uh, is a, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a concept that involves placeholders that need to be filled in. Liberty or freedom means liberty from something to do something else. And it, it matters a great deal what the something and the something else are that you plug into those placeholders. Uh, so the values at stake are then determined by what you put in that placeholder and the philosophic outlook that you use to understand it. So if, for example, you're an ethical egoist like Ayn Rand, you think you need freedom from physical force in order to be able to think and produce and pursue your happiness, uh, which is a goal that is morally sanctioned by that ethical code. But if you're an altruist, you don't think that the most important thing in, in ethics is uh, pursuing your happiness, but instead uh, sacrificing yourself to others' need, well, freedom is going to have a different value. The freedom from force is not going to have the same value for that purpose. And some other kind of freedom, like the freedom to take others' goods in order to evade reality, uh, the, the reality of the need of production, that's going to instead uh, play a role. And uh, it's, it's also worth pointing out, Nikos, that the, the, some of the figures you just mentioned, like, like Benjamin Tucker, I mean, this is one of the central figures in, this, in the story of this book that we've just been talking about. This isn't someone you're uh, you know, grabbing from some footnote somewhere. He's, he's a pivotal figure in this history. He called himself a libertarian. Now, lots of people use words different ways, but here he calls himself a libertarian. He has an influence on Rothbard. Everybody today calls Rothbard a libertarian. Uh, the authors of this book uh, are stressing the connection between the history of today's libertarian movement and the history of the left. They're, they're, they're putting it on a pedestal. In effect, I think in part because they're trying to use it as an overture to reach out to people on the left to see, hey, we're not that different from you. But, but also in part, I think, because the, the way they understand the meaning of the concept libertarian uh, dictates this. It's a very open-ended concept for them. 
uh, as we'll see, held together by not much more than kind of linguistic similarities. People call themselves libertarians, they're libertarian. They speak of liberty, they're libertarian. Now, that's a bit oversimplified, given what they say, and we'll, we'll dig a little into the details later. But um, another place where this comes out is in the different left-wing attitudes toward foreign policy. And uh, Nikos, how does that come up in the book? Right. So this doesn't only come up with the book. For anyone who is familiar with the work of, for example, Rothbard, you will be surprised to find out that many of the foreign policy takes of Rothbard and other libertarians, you'd expect them to find at the kind of analysis of a Noam Chomsky or a Howard Zinn. So let's give, us, let's give our viewers some examples. So in the 1960s, the big issue in public sphere in the United States, of course, is the war in Vietnam. And Rothbard forms, tries to form an alliance with the then emerging new left. So he creates a journal called Left and Right, and he's praising the new left. Why? Because he says the new left does not know what they stand for, but they know what they stand against. And they stand against U.S. foreign policy, what he called the U.S. empire, and what he called the military-industrial complex. And now some people might say, come on, this is not necessarily a leftist position, being, let's say, an isolationist, again, whatever that means. But notice that Rothbard doesn't just say, I will oppose U.S. foreign interventions, which in some particular context might be a reasonable position. He takes a step further. He joins forces with people who don't only oppose uh, adventurist interventions abroad, but also who parade with portraits of Ho Chi Minh. Rothbard himself forces alliances with socialists and even, at some point, uh, he, he joins hands with hardcore Maoists, with the Progressive Labour Party. Now, he would call this a tactical alliance, but even in terms of tactic, it's very weird if you form alliance with Maoists. And, of course, for Rothbard, this has also an impact on how he viewed the biggest, let's say, uh, the, the, the second superpower of that time, which was Soviet Union. So Rothbard had surprisingly good things to say about Soviet foreign policy. Actually, he claimed that Soviet Union was an example, an example of peaceful coexistence. And he claimed that from Lenin to Stalin, Soviet Union was a paragon of peace. And I know that these things sound completely crazy. So you can find them in his book for a new liberty. And actually in page 355 is where you find these very, very weird statements. But also you wouldn't expect from a quote isolationist to give praise to Che Guevara. Che Guevara was the uh, Argentinian guerrilla who tried to spread communist revolutions in Latin America. So when Che Guevara died, Rothbard wrote the following, quote, Che is dead and we all mourn him. Why? What made Che such a, such a heroic figure for our time is that he, more than any man of our epoch or even of our century, was the living embodiment of the principle of revolution. Later he says, we all know that his enemy was our enemy, the great colossus that oppresses and threatens all people of the world, United States imperialism. And then, the CIA might claim Che Guevara's body, but it will never be able to suckle his spirit. End of quote. And Rothbard finished his obituary 
about Che Guevara with a long quote by Fidel Castro. So, no, I don't see this just merely, oh, he's an isolationist in foreign policy. He has such a disdain for the United States that he has good things to say about Che Guevara, about, he quotes Fidel Castro, and he considered Stalin a paragon of peace. And I gave you again the bibliographical reference because otherwise it's impossible to believe that a libertarian could make such claims. And yet he does. So how, what are we to make of this, of this Ben? Libertarians praising Che, Fidel, and Soviet Union foreign policy. And marching are along people with, uh, with uh, portraits of Ho Chi Minh and of Mao. Yeah, you mentioned a few times that it was, uh, it was strange, that it was weird. But if you, I think, understand a lot of the ideas that are motivating people like Rothbard, and we'll talk more about them soon, it looks a little less weird. Uh, because uh, one, of the, one of the ideas that animates that whole wing of the libertarian movement and which the other wing then tolerates uh, is a sympathy for or outright advocacy for anarchism. And so if, if what really motivates you is not upholding individual freedom, but instead smashing the state, then you, it'll be a lot easier for you to go along with uh, various leftist revolutionaries who are working precisely to do that. And remember, of course, that I mean, anarchism originally comes from the left. That's, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a creature of uh, socialist and communist views. And if you think, well, but isn't socialism, aren't socialism and communism, aren't they advocates of statism and big government and things like that? Well, of course, they insist they aren't. And at the end of the day, there is a serious question of like, how different are statism and anarchism anyway, given that what you have when statism, status principles get implemented in a society is a kind of pressure group warfare, a kind of cold civil war. Uh, among these different competing interest groups, which is, you know, a form of anarchy. Uh, and the more statist a, company, a country becomes, the more anarchistic it becomes. That's a whole separate topic. But there's, there's, uh, there's a lot here to discuss. Right. And recently, I watched a debate between Yaron Brook and Brian Kaplan, between Yaron and the anarcho-capitalist. To some people, this might sound weird. What statism and anarchists might have similarities? We don't have much time to elaborate on this. I encourage people to check out that debate. Yaron there elaborates a bit more on how anarchism and some forms of and forms of statism might not be as far as it sounds. Because I understand that to many people it sounds like well, that's an outlandish statement. Turns out it might not be. So the weird links, I call them weird, you explain them intellectually between libertarianism and the left, we already mentioned them. But there's another strand in the libertarian movement which is flirting, to put it mildly, with right-wing reactionary ideas. And I will try to be as precise and to, to be fair to the argument they made. So many libertarians claim you can be a bigot, you can be a racist, a homophobe, and not violate the non-aggressive principle. The non-aggression principle says that, uh, which is the... The, the building rock of libertarianism, the central principle of libertarianism, which says don't use force against others. So this means you can be a bigot, but you don't coerce anyone, you don't use force against anyone, therefore it is okay. And which also tells us something about the non-aggression principle and how it's a very weak 
stable rock to build around the whole philosophy, particularly if it's not only a political philosophy. But there are parts of the libertarian movement that their views even go against the way I see it to the non-aggression principle. Let me give you some examples. What about the libertarians who are again who are anti-immigration? Libertarians who claim that because immigrants, for example, uh, abuse the welfare system or put the pressure on the welfare system, immigrants, the state should try to keep immigrants out. Or what about libertarianism? And all these are libertarians who are what we call paleo-libertarians. This is a stream in the libertarian movement, uh, gaining momentum in the early 90s after the Cold War with figures such as Lou Rockwell, Murray Rothbard, while he was still around, he died, I think, in 94, and later Hans Hermann Hoppe, who have these, let's call them right-wing reactionary views. That's how most people would understand them. So anti-immigration, the ideas around vigilantism and the ideas that it's okay to have like extra jurisdiction extra court uh, punishment of, of, uh, of uh, criminals, which we find in various libertarians. And again, that sounds weird. How would you be in favor of the police or of vigilantes uh, harming people outside of the rules of an objective legal system? Or the biggest, the most controversial example, their sympathy for the so-called Southern Rebellion for the case of the South in the Civil War. And again, trying to be precise what they say. They say that slavery is wrong. The South, indeed, in the American Civil War, went to war because they wanted to retain slavery. Most of them would uh, accept that. But they say the North, when attacking the South, the North didn't have in mind the interest of the slaves. They wanted to retain the Union. Therefore, they said, in that particular war, the South was on the right. The South had right by its side. Why? Because it was a war of secession. The right to secede is uh, a sacred right. And therefore, of course, slavery was wrong, but at least the South was defending this sacred right. So this is the view I hope I did justice to it of... Uh, let's call it right-wing reactionary libertarianism. So the question is, Ben, where do these views come from? And although we can understand the idea that says that, well, bigotry doesn't violate anyone's rights, how do you go from there to the point of view that says, well, maybe the South had uh, was a righteous cause? I think we could spend a lot of time on each of these issues, but the answer, I think, comes back to the same things I had to say about their overtures and connections to the left. Uh, one of the connections you see coming out there again is the anarchism. If you're more anti-state than you are pro-individual rights, which many libertarians are, then the, the vigilantism uh, and even the endorsement of uh, lawless behavior by police is, is going to come right out of that worldview. And it also relates to the point that, again, freedom is the, not only your advocacy of it, but your, what you mean by it when you advocate it is going to depend upon your underlying philosophical values. If what you really care about is the, the importance of 
the culture, the importance of the nation, the importance of the family, then that will be the basically the social unit whose quote-unquote freedom you care the most about. You want them to be free from the uh, infiltration, invasion of uh, uh, people who are not in your family, people who are not in your nation. And increasingly, you start to see some of these, as you call them, paleo-libertarians, embracing the sort of family values agenda of today's conservatives. And the, the book, the Zwilinski and Tomasi book, documents in pretty surprising detail the extent to which the Rothbards and the, the Hoppas have reached out to and assimilated with the kind of cultural conservative attitude. And particularly in the last uh, few years, also they have taken control of the Libertarian Party through the Mises Caucus. Now, the Libertarian Party is, 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 is another mess. It's, it's, it's a story of its own. But just putting it out there that this wing of libertarians, what we would call paleo-libertarians, today are in control of the Libertarian Party, official in control, institutionally in control of the party. Now, before we move forward, let me say one thing about, uh, we have a question, and many thanks to our super chatter, Dylan, about the Austrian School of Economics. So you mentioned, our friend mentions Mises, She says that Ayn Rand liked Mises, but despised Rothbard. She says, it seems like a lot of libertarians have the Austrian school as a strong base. So the Austrian school of economics, of course, there's a lot to appreciate in it. I consider Mises the best economist of all times, although my training in economics is close to zero. But Mises helped me understand economics. Let me take it a step further. Rothbard's book uh, on the, the book where he starts by trying to simplify Mises, but he ends up writing a treatise on his own, also helped me to understand uh, economics better. So the way I understand it, Rand had issues with the methodology of the Austrian School of Economics, but as a school of economics, she appreciated it. And speaking personally, I appreciated it and it helped me to, to solve it. It was the vehicle through which I left behind uh, Marx and economics and I saw the fallacies in Marxism. So, Ben, have you got any comment about these, let's say, even take the figures like Rothbard, these figures, not as political philosophers, but as economists. So the Austrian School of Economics. I'm not sure if Rothbard did uh, so much work in economics compared to what he did in political philosophy. But if you're talking about the rest of the Austrians, uh, then for sure, Ayn Rand saw great value in their and their work in economics. And more than that as well. I mean, it's, it's Mises was himself a, a political philosopher and he was a lot better than what you would think given the positions that become associated with him because there's something called the von Mises Institute, which is the headquarters of the paleo-libertarian movement. Um, Mises was not a paleo-libertarian. I don't know if he even called himself a libertarian. He generally called himself a liberal. Now, it's true that he has, of course, been uh, basically appropriated by the libertarian movement as you know, one of their figureheads. And that's something that we need to understand in relation to how they think of the meaning of the very idea of libertarianism, which is actually going to Uh, this is the, the next thing I wanted to talk about. So why don't we why don't we go right into that topic? Because I think this will address that question. 
Right. So then the question now becomes, after we have, we, we found right-wing elements, we found left-wing elements. So now the question then becomes, what is libertarianism? How do we define libertarianism? And the, the authors of the book give us some indications. Look for these six things if you want to find what a libertarian is. But let's move a step back. So Ben, is there such a thing as libertarian? Shall we even try to come up with a definition? Because we've already seen there are parts of the movement that move to completely different directions from each other. So is there even such a thing as libertarianism? Well, there is, but you have to distinguish between the movement and the, and the ideology. Uh, there's, there's definitely a movement of people who call themselves libertarians, and they, there's certain sociological bonds that unite them. And I'll talk a little more about that. But what's important for our purposes especially is that there, there isn't really a coherent ideology that unites them. And if you take a look at this book by Zwinski and Tomasi, if you read it carefully, that should become even clearer to you. Uh, I think that the authors themselves halfway confess that there's no uh, coherent ideology that links this movement together. That's because when they get around to talking about what is the definition of libertarianism, they say, well, it doesn't have a definition in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. It really only works as a kind of family resemblance cluster concept. And if any of you know uh, Wittgenstein, this is the idea that you, you dispense with the idea of defining in terms of essential characteristics, and instead you try to see how different strands of a phenomenon have vague similarities in common that shift their standards from uh, unit to unit. And so I say they half confess this. They, they don't outright say that there's no coherent ideology, but when you look at their reasons for thinking that there is, you see that their reasons start to fall apart. And in part, I think they're doing this uh, on purpose. That is, they, it, it's, a, it's often offered as a, as a good thing by libertarians that, look, we're a big tent. We embrace all these different ideological orientations where uh, you know, we, can, we can agree on what we're going for, what we're working with, the kind of change that we're working for in spite of our ideological differences. Let's all get together and sing Kumbaya. And at times that comes out in this book. The, the title that we gave to this episode was Libertarianism, Big Tent or Big Mess. And uh, you can guess by now that what we're going for is that the, it's actually a big mess. And that's in many ways by the author's own admission, though they're again not putting it in those terms. Uh, the subtitle of the book is important. It's Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. And that struggle for the soul of Libertarianism is their way of summing up some of the uh, some of the major ideological differences that you see between these left libertarians, between these right-wing libertarians, culturally conservative libertarians. I mean, these are not just idle differences. These are differences that lead them to have tremendous infighting and, and go through all kinds of splits. And uh, it, there's a reason for it, because there's ultimately no real single coherent ideology that binds together the people who call themselves libertarian. And you can see this uh, on one issue especially, and then we'll, we'll drill down into some more of their details, but 
of course, it's true that anytime you form a concept of an ideology and you recognize that there are uh, different people who adopt the same ideology, you allow for the fact that there's going to be variations in the theme. Uh, you can, in effect, omit measurements among the different variations and still recognize that there's a kind of thing these people all believe. But the kind of variations we're talking about here are way bigger than that. These are, these are differences of kind, not just differences in degree. And it starts out with some of the very examples we've already been talking about, Nikos. So you talked about the history of the connection between the libertarian movement and the left. And it's noteworthy and symbolic in this respect that... Uh, Zwolinski and Tomasi cite the very first person ever to call himself a libertarian by, according to their research, was a fellow named uh, Joseph de Jacques, who was a French anarcho-communist. Of course, we also talked about Benjamin Tucker, whom I've seen uh, described as the first American to ever call himself a libertarian. Again, another kind of socialist. And just one issue in particular brings this out. And that's the issue of the relationship between freedom and anarchism. Murray Rothbard, who the book reminds us, uh, his nickname was Mr. Libertarian, uh, was a vocal and uh, intransigent anarchist. And Ayn Rand was a vocal and intransigent critic of Rothbard and of his anarchism. And the simple question to ask yourself is, how the heck do these fit together into a single ideology? They're both against something they call statism. And it's thought that Rand's view and Rothbard's view still have something in common because, well, they're, they're both anti-statist, aren't they? And that's part of the reason, by the way, why libertarians and anarchists will often call positions like Rand's minarchism. Minarchism is the idea that you should have a limited government. It's the idea that you should minimize the amount of state that you, that you have. Well, why would you put it in those terms if you didn't think, well, the state is a at best a necessary evil, and so you should just have as little of it as possible, and if it's not possible to have less, okay, then you're a minarchist. Otherwise, the ideal that eliminates all of the evil is anarchism. But Ayn Rand definitely did not think of herself as a minarchist, even though she advocated limited government. And that's because she was, put this simply, she was pro-government. She, she didn't think that it was a necessary evil. She thought it was a necessary good, necessary for the protection of individual rights. And she thought that anarchy was, was a horrific thing that was at odds with the value of individual rights. And so when you're thinking in terms of political philosophy, how are we going to categorize our political philosophies? Well, in a proper definition of any political philosophy, you, you define in terms of essentials and in terms of fundamentals. And if there isn't a fundamental difference in political philosophy between the idea that we should have a government and the idea that we should have no government, I don't know what would be a more fundamental difference. And so when you put Rand and Rothbard together under the same ideological heading, it's incoherent. They are fundamentally opposed to each other on the most fundamental question of political philosophy. And so the thing to then observe about the way the libertarian movement thinks about uh, the meaning of libertari libertarianism is that it's essentially grafted together. It's tried to graft together two fundamentally incompatible intellectual traditions 
on the one hand, you have people like Rand and I think Mises and Bastiat and other liberals coming out of the 19th century, to some extent, Robert Nozick, who believe in the importance of government, who think government exists to protect individual rights. And libertarians say there's nothing basically different between that tradition and, on the other hand, the anarchists, Rothbard, Molinari, Tucker, Rockwell, various communists and other anarchists. And what holds them together is, well, they all say that they're against certain kinds of state and they say that they're in favor of liberty. But that's at most a linguistic commonality that doesn't highlight anything of philosophical substance. But we, such questions can arise, can arise also for other movements. So, for example, is there such thing as the left? When under that umbrella you have Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, but also you have, let's say, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez would consider herself being on the left. Or more fundamental differences. You have the old, let's say, Promethean Bolsheviks who wanted to conquer nature and build factories and give, take us to space. And today you have the environmentalists who consider that any impact on nature is something which is bad. Or you have the Stalinists on the one side and you have the anarcho-communists, the libertarian communists think about Spanish civil war, the people around uh, Senate and around Duruti, which ended up uh, shooting it out with the Stalinists. So we find similar problems also in the left. So how can these completely different takes be under the same, the same ten? But there's also another problem. It's not only the fundamental question of how do you view the states. There is also the fundamental question of what is your morality. So for me, it's an b- even bigger problem when you have under the same tent people who are utilitarians with people who have a philosophy, you like it or you don't like it, like the philosophy of Ayn Rand, which is it's, 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 based, on, it's based on specific principles and it's comp- and it's a philosophy which does not tell you, as the utilitarians do, well, freedom might be good sometimes based on what it's an effect on the greatest good for the greatest uh, amount of people, but sometimes it's a problem. Or how can you have under the same ten, as you said, uh, ethical egoists with people who think that uh, libertarianism is good because the market allows you to serve other people? I've heard this from some uh, Christian, uh, some Christian anarchists. Or how can you have under the same term people who believe in the idea of justice and people who think that you should be a pacifist and there should not even be prisons? I've heard, again, some uh, libertarians claim that if someone commits a crime, then the proper way to deal with them would be just to ostracize them. So for me, these philosophical differences also make it very weird to put these people, like a utilitarian and, uh, and someone like Rant under the same tent. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't have things to learn, let's say, from Hayekian economics. This doesn't mean that uh, there's not things to learn from, let's say, a good thought experiment that Nozick might have, whatever. But again, the problem here is that these differences are, at the end of the day, unbridgeable. Because if your criteria is the greatest good for the greatest number of people, very soon you will find yourself in territories that have nothing to do with the defense of freedom, which is supposedly the glue that holds together libertarians.
Yeah, I think when you rightly emphasize that you can't fit these different underlying moral philosophies together, uh, that's what helps really explain away any appearance of ideological coherence. What I stressed is that at the end of the day, what the people called libertarians in this movement have in common is really simply linguistic. It's they, they like to use the word liberty and, and similar other concepts we'll get to soon. The words don't have meaning unless they're attached to a philosophic outlook. And if you have different philosophic outlooks, uh, then the words mean something different in the mouths of the different members of the group. But we should, we should give the devil his due in effect a little bit more here because uh, the, the authors of this book, Zwolinski and Tomasi, have made a little bit more of an argument than we're letting on as to why they think there is ideological coherence. And they say that there are six markers of libertarian ideas that you find in anyone who adopts this viewpoint. And so since there's six of them, and they, they say that these are interlocking ideas, we should take a look at what these six are and see if it's really true that the people that they treat as libertarians, many of the examples we've talked about already, really do fit them. And so here, here are the, the big six markers. A belief in the importance of private property. In fact, they say that property rights are foundational. Skepticism of authority, free markets, spontaneous order, individualism, and negative liberty. Now, I think there's something to say about each of these, and I want to say something about each, about how when you look at the major figures in the movement, in the libertarian movement, or people who are considered to be in this movement, by the authors at least, they simply, you know, they may mouth support for each of these concepts, but what they mean by them is very, very different. And so there's no real ideological unity here. So consider private property, the idea that it is a foundational right. Well, Nikos, you already talked about Benjamin Tucker's libertarian socialism and his opposition to rent and profit. And, and part of the idea there, one that he also shares with Henry George, who's written about in this book, is that there is no valid property right in land. And so squatters' rights rule, landlords, uh, absentee landlords who aren't actively using the property don't have the right to charge you rent. And so my question is, do you really think that they all believe in the same kind of private property if they don't believe in something seemingly as foundational as private property in land? Uh, likewise, the socialists who are considered socialist libertarians in this tradition who think that you own your labor and therefore when the capitalist pays you a wage and takes away the fruits of your labor, he is robbing you. And therefore uh, it's a violation of the property rights of the worker to uh, hire him as a wage laborer. They may well talk about the importance of private property there, but does that mean anything like what private property means, means to someone like Ayn Rand or to Frederick Bastiat? I don't think so. There's, there's no real ideological unity here. And, and just by the way, I don't think Ayn Rand even thinks that property rights are foundational. She thinks the right to life is foundational and property rights are an essential implementation of that. But that's another major intellectual difference between her, someone who they regard as a libertarian, but who isn't really, uh, and who uh, nonetheless has nothing like the views on private property as someone like Rothbard or certainly someone like Tucker 
or George. Or in other issues such as, let's take spontaneous order, for example. Again, when I first came across the idea of spontaneous order, I thought, wow, this is, this is such a great concept. It explains so much. And in the books, Volinsky and Tomasi have a, 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 a very powerful part where they say, can you imagine that a whole city like Paris, how many million people, there's all these foods wherever you go in the supermarkets and no one is behind this. It's like, wow, yes. But at the end of the day, it's not spontaneous order somehow that delivers us this good. It's the, 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 the conscious, dedicated actions of people who have a vision about their personal interest. And rather than viewing it in the way Adam Smith viewed it, that my, through this invisible hand of the market, my egoistic uh, goals, which supposedly are bad, manage to bring good results, I think Ayn Rand gives us a better way to view it. It's a trader's principle. I created something, you don't value it, you go your own way. You, someone else values it, we trade, we're both better off. We both pursue our egoistic uh, interest and there's nothing wrong with that. This is how we have the miracle of today's civilization. So here, it's not that we are pedantic, like, hey, you know, actually there's no spontaneous order. It's just that seeing it this way takes away something very important, which is the role of the mind, the role of the, the, role of the entrepreneur. So that's why we think that, these, that the, we both agree that these six points, even within them, there's no agreement actually among libertarians. Or take the issue of individualism. Right. Let's so when you have libertarians, because it, it disappeared, because we've just I yeah, want to make clear we were just talking about the the point on the uh, the list that was a spontaneous order. And let me say one more thing about that before you get to any of the other items. Yeah, yeah, just that yeah. the idea that spontaneous order is essential to your case for freedom. That's an idea that comes from people like Friedrich Hayek and Leonard Reed and that essay I pencil, for instance. And there's there's a point to that idea, the idea that, well, there's certainly no planned state, there's no state planning that is necessary uh, for coordinating production. But I think you never would have found Ayn Rand championing spontaneous order in the way that libertarians do, because the way they often do is it implies a, a worship of a kind of humility. Ah, none of us really knows what it takes to make the world go round. It happens by a kind of accidental magic, again, that kind of invisible hand idea, the stress on the invisible hand that you were mentioning, Ecos. But Ayn Rand thinks that's, a, that's an unjust response and take on uh, the fact that, no, actually, some people do know more than others. And the ones who know the most, the ones who are centrally responsible for coordinating different factors of production are businessmen. And the spontaneous order ends up uh, evading that fact. And it's true that businessmen don't know, they're not omniscient gods who control the entire economy, but they do know more uh, than others with regard to the process of production. And that's, that's something you, you certainly don't see, uh, that the reverence for the businessmen, something you certainly don't see uniting, uh, uniting libertarians. And one place that comes out in particular is, Nikos, the, the free markets point, where do you, do you, I mean, one question is, can you, can you actually support and celebrate free markets if you don't celebrate the best exponents and users of them, the businessmen? But one thing that comes out in this book is the whole Rothbardian 
critique of big business on the grounds that if you have a company like Walmart and, uh, well, they, they, they accuse Ayn Rand of uh, being too quick to defend big business in, in spite of the fact that they think big businesses are creatures of statism. Why? Well, because just like leftists say, they rely on the public roads uh, to ship their products. Now, leave us, and they leave aside entirely the fact that, well, yeah, they also pay lots of taxes and are subject to all kinds of regulations. Uh, and th that hardly makes them a creature of, of, the of any kind of statism. Yeah, and again, Rand also dramatizes this very well. Think about Hank Reardon, right? There's no invisible hand there. Reardon is struggling for years. He envisions something. He finds other people who share this vision or see how Dagny uh, sells her shares about the John Gold line. So these people, it's not like spontaneous order. It almost takes away their achievement. And also, let's, let's see the point on individualism. So how can utilitarians believe in individualism? How can people like Hayek, how can you call Hayek an individualist? The guy who says that, well, you have to, sometimes freedom doesn't work because some people might fall below the, pro the poverty line. And then the state has a role to play, which means that you then become the servant, unwilling servant of other people. So we're gonna take from you and give it to someone else. Or how can you persuade me that uh, many paleo-libertarians are individualists when they say, for example, things around immigration, such as, well, there's some particular cultures that are not compatible with the ideas of freedom, and therefore we should uh, pose some, uh, uh, blanket, uh, some blanket bans because, because uh, well, you know, otherwise it's, it's, it's risky or whatever. So I'm not convinced that anyone who is under the... Uh, tent of libertarian shares an appreciation of what actually individualism means. What means that your life is yours and your life is an end in itself. You're not here to serve others without you uh, having chosen to do so or without you having uh, agreed to do so, to help There's others. a couple of other places where that really comes out in this book. Uh, one is, again, this is the same stuff about spontaneous order that we were just talking about. If you read Leonard Reed's essay, I Pencil, which has a lot of helpful and useful economics in it, you nonetheless get the idea that uh, there is, uh, no one ever made a, a pencil except for God. That we shouldn't have the pride to think that we could actually make pencils. We certainly don't have the knowledge. No single individual has the knowledge. That kind of humility is the opposite of individualism. It's the opposite of the idea of the self-made soul and the self-made man. Another place where you see it is in another manifestation of the left in the libertarian movement, which is the whole so-called bleeding hearts libertarians phenomenon. And this is something that the authors of the book, Zbilinski and Tomasi, are themselves, associate themselves with. And this is the idea that says you can take the political philosophy of John Rawls, author of theory of justice, whose theory of social justice says that you need to basically work in order to make sure that people who have greater advantages than others, that the fact that they have that works to the benefit of those with the least advantage, kind of open egalitarianism. That bleeding heart libertarianism is the idea you can take that philosophy of Rawls and graft it onto advocacy of, of individual freedom. 
with the idea that, well, if you have individual freedom and you have markets that will work to create the, uh, to increase the social surplus, that will trickle down to the poor and that will lift them up. And whatever you want to say about the economics there, the idea that you treat as your standard of philosophical justice, the egalitarianism of Rawls, is as far from individualism as you could possibly get, because it's premised on the whole idea that comes straight out of, I mean, it originally comes out of Rawls, but you see manifestations of it, for instance, in the social justice theories of Barack Obama, who says, you didn't build that. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. It was, it was the government that... Uh, that gave you roads and bridges and so forth. And deeper than that for Rawls is the idea that you didn't really build your soul. You didn't build your character, your work ethic. And that's why you don't get to claim that you deserve the fruits of your labor, the, the fruits of the product of your mind. Uh, that's about as anti-individualistic as it comes. And if you're thinking of yourself as an individualist, but that's your moral framework, uh, you've got another think coming. Um, and just, I guess, one last point on this list, the negative liberty point. Now, this is a very common view that, that, that uh, may well be true of many people who call themselves libertarians, that what liberty is essentially is negative as opposed to positive liberty. The idea that it's freedom from something, not freedom to something, not a right to something. And they think of this as, well, this is why you've got the right to be free from force, but you don't have the right to welfare. But that's, again, not the way Ayn Rand thinks of it, and she doesn't belong under this heading, even though they use her as a prominent example. She thinks that the kind of freedom that counts in political philosophy uh, is both. It's freedom from and freedom to. It's the freedom from force so that you can be free to think and produce and therefore pursue your happiness as a rational being. Uh, she doesn't think that you can explain or make sense of why freedom from force is important unless it has in mind that positive norm that you're trying to allow people to achieve. And so you can't have a value-free uh, political philosophy. Your political philosophy has to be based on some positive vision of the good. And therefore, freedom too is, is essential there. She sees the, the right to life as the basic individual right. And it's a right because you have it because it is right for you to pursue your life and happiness. Right. So last two points, Ben, let's try to fit them within the last seven minutes. The first is, and again, I promise the last thing we'll discuss is why bother and is this infighting and is this hair speeding? We, we're going to get to that. But before that, a penultimate point. Yet, after all the things we've said, after making the case that, no, there is no coherent ideology of libertarians, there is no such a thing as the liberty movement. And it does make a sense to talk of such a thing as the liberty movement. And when I was writing the tribalist book, I had the discussion with Greg Salmieri, our, our common our friend, who was very enlightening. He said, yes, of course, within the right, there are irreconcilable differences. And even within the left, you might have the left of today the new left, let's say, being philosophically and politically very different from the old left. But these are people who see themselves as part of the same movement. These are people who, see, who view themselves as having a common history, a common political history, common historical bonds. So it does make a sense to talk about the left as a movement. And I think in the same way, it does make a sense to talk about uh, the liberty 
movement. And in some ways, we participate in this, let's say, giving talks to students for liberty. We recognize that, yeah, there is like a political kind of fight that we are uh, somewhere close in the in the trenches. Am I right in viewing it this way? Yeah, I think that's right. There's there is a kind of sociological unity in the libertarian movement, but it's not a coherent ideology that binds them together. There is a certain kind of idea that holds them together, but it's a, it's a loose and implicit one. And it's something like the following. And this is something I also attribute to Greg, who I think made a great point. The Today's liber so-called libertarians are people who either think that anarchism is compatible with freedom or they tolerate the people who do think that. And what unites that either or is a kind of agnosticism about the importance of uh, philosophical fundamentals. So these are all people who agree linguistically that liberty is important, and then they're agnostic about the, the, the role of, of anarchy. And so this is exactly why there's a struggle for this movement's soul. If you try to graft together a bunch of th different thinkers who at the end of the day have nothing ideologically coherent in common with another, with one another. Is it any surprise? Is it any shock that you will have dramatic uh, infighting among these different factions, all of whom have entirely different philosophical justifications for the conclusions that all happen to have the same language but don't mean the, th the same thing? Of, of course there's going to be infighting. Of course there's going to be a struggle for their soul. And none of this is to say that they're all equally bad. I mean, I think part of the reason why we do broadcasts like this is precisely because we think there are these two very different traditions that the libertarians have been trying to graft together. The actually pro-individual freedom tradition, which sees that government is an essential prerequisite for that, versus the anarchy tradition. They've tried to graft them together. They don't actually fit together. This explains a lot of the infighting. And what Ayn Rand was trying to do and what we're trying to do is to, is to speak to the better ones among them to try to convince them to uh, walk away from that movement, to stop having that kind of toleration for the anarchists and the leftists and the nationalist racists, and to realize that we need a government in order to protect individual freedom, and that you also need a coherent philosophical ideology in order to justify and defend that value of individual freedom. And I mean, that's obviously what objectivism is for. So this also relates to the question that many of our friends might have, which is, come on, this is infighting. Uh, why, why spend the time attacking people who we share some, uh, some values? So you're saying this is an intellectual battle, which is important. And also, let me say, you will find the same in any political movement. It doesn't mean that because the others do it, we should do it as well. But when you have people who take ideas seriously, you will see them trying to make sure they clarify and they understand what are the proper ideas and then how these ideas should be applied and what are the things which share and what are the things that divide them. So I don't see this as sectarian or hair splitting or however someone might want to call it. I think, again, it's important that the, the point here isn't that uh, we should, we should uh, completely... Uh, cut off all relations to people who call themselves libertarians. In fact, the Ayn Rand Institute regularly speaks to people who think they are libertarians. But 
what I don't like about this question that we often get is that it is sort of an anti-intellectual question in that it just assumes that everybody already knows that we're all that a very large group of people who have many differences are actually all on the same side and actually all have the same enemies. And I think that, I mean, if you want to check that premise of yours, reading this book is a great way to do it. And that's in spite, I think, of the author's intentions, because what the book actually shows is the whole history of the whole ragtag, incoherent group of figures and activists and thinkers who've all been crammed together into a box that does not fit them, who don't have the same enemies, who don't have the same, who don't stand for the same values, who at best have some language that they use to describe their values in common. And if you, if you really think it's, it's worth being political bedfellows with people who are opposed to your values, but who, well, they use the same language, so it makes it sound nice going down, that's a hopeless position. Yeah, it's not going to end well. Right. So we've been talking about the book, The Individualist, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. Now, we spend an hour criticizing things. Still, it's a book from which I've learned stuff, and it's a good history, very good history of the libertarian movement. Now, further sources and some of the things that we mentioned. We talked about uh, Peter's, we didn't mention it, but Peter's farts in the voice of reason has the critique of libertarianism, the libertarianism, the perversion of liberty. It's an essay on the voice of reason. Also, there is this edited book, Foundations of a Free Society, edited by Greg Salmieri and Robert Mayhew, which reflects on Ayn Rand's political philosophy, their discussions on libertarianism, and actually, Mats Volinsky is, has, has contributed an essay here. There, was also, there are also some videos in the Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel. There was a series of talks by Greg, by Onkar Gatte, and you can find it. It's, it's a little playlist, Politics, Liberty, and Objectivism by Greg, but there, the more people contribute to it. There are some relatively short videos, so, but they're quite helpful in putting all this into perspective. Speaking of our YouTube channel, make sure you like, subscribe so that you get the notifications and also that we get the mal boost that what we're doing is actually having a good, uh, a good impact. Now, also, you can send us your questions and this can be either suggestions for future episodes, topics that you want us to cover, or every now and then we do Q&As. So you can ask philosophical questions and uh, people from the Institute, our intellectuals, will answer them. Next week, if I'm not mistaken, it's me and Elan talking about Saudi Arabia and football. Yeah, the, not only football. I'm interested in football. It's what you people probably call soccer. So we're going to talk about recent developments in Saudi Arabia. They have to do with diplomacy. Adult part I'm mostly prepping about and I'm more interested in. So this is a New Idea Live next week. Ben, thank you for suggesting this topic and many thanks to our viewers. All the best. Thanks, Nico. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.